This is Dig Deeper, a podcast and video Bible study with Pastor John Rollison from Journey of Life Lutheran Church in Orlando, Florida. Each week, Pastor John takes the text or topic of this sermon and digs into it a little deeper for people who want to go a little deeper. We're glad you're here. Yes, and hello there. I am John Rallison, the pastor at Journey of Life Lutheran Church in Orlando, Florida, and I want to welcome you to this edition of Dig Deeper. I am so glad you're here. Uh, You can visit us on the web at journeyoflife.org or my personal blog site, which is johnrallison.com. So this week's edition of Dig Deeper follows up on last week's edition of Dig Deeper. This week's edition of Dig Deeper is taken from Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 48, and it divides into two sections. The first section is on uh, retaliation. And the other section is on loving your enemies. And so that's where we're going to go with this. And I'm going to pull my ugly mug off the, uh, off the video monitor there. And uh, if you are listening to this instead of watching it, you, of course, didn't have to see that. Here we go. Uh, this is uh, Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 48. And again, we're going to start with uh, it comes in two sections, so we're going to start with the first section, first section, and then we're going to take that apart a little bit, the part about retaliation, and then we're going to move on to the second section, which is about loving your enemies, and ends with this crazy line, be perfect, therefore, as your Father in heaven is perfect. That's quite a thing to ask of anybody, I think. So uh, we'll see how that goes. Um, here we go. I'm going to read the first section right now. And it's going to be Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 42. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if you would sue, excuse me, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now, before we go on, I do want to um, mention one more thing. For those of you who are listening to this in February, um, our Ash Wednesday service is on March 1st, 2017, and we would love to have you come to that and be part of that if you're in Central Florida. So just go to journeyoflife.org and scroll down and you'll see all the information there for our Ash Wednesday service. Ash Wednesday is such a powerful, powerful and important service because it's the it's it's really the one time a year when every one of us has to sort of stare our mortality in the face. And um It's not necessarily a happy service, but it's a service that's really good for you because the truth is always good for you. Okay, that's the end of my ad. So now we're going to move on here and we're going to take a look at this first verse. Jesus said, this is Jesus speaking. He says, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And the place that you have heard that said is in the Old Testament. And let me just take you back to 
the law in the Old Testament from the book of Leviticus. There's uh, two books of main books of law in the Old Testament. Of course, there's king's edicts and stuff all over the place. But the two main books of the law are Leviticus. That's like the Levitical law. And then Deuteronomy, which actually means second law. So that's the second time the law was given. So here is Leviticus 24, verses 17 through 22. And it's on this concept of an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. The law in the Old Testament says, Whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Whoever takes an animal's life shall make it good, life for life. If anyone injures his neighbor... As he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good, and whoever kills a person shall be put to death. You shall have the same rule for the sojourner and for the native, for I am the Lord your God. So the first thing to notice here is, uh, or at least the first thing I want to point out to you is that this law of retribution is pretty standard, but this is actually, uh, even in this form, it's a reigning in of human nature, right? Think back to when you were a kid and uh, somebody, maybe you, if you grew up with a brother or sister, it's quite possible that at one time or another, your brother or your sister hit you. And what do you do? Do you hit back with exactly the same strength? No you hit back harder, right? And then they hit back harder and they hit back harder. And that's the way it goes um, until somebody decides it's got to stop. So this idea of exact retribution instead of, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, instead of they killed somebody from your village, so you're going to go to kill two people from their village, or you're really angry, so you're going to go wipe out their whole village or something, that uh, the law in Leviticus uh takes that, uh, um, throttles that way, 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 way down and says, nope, uh, if somebody hurts you, uh, then that same thing uh, gets done back to them. And th this is not, just for your information, this is not in the course of accidents. Now, it would be in the course of negligence, but uh, it's not necessarily carried out in the course of accidents when they happen. But it does, of course, give one pause and care and it's an interesting side note as I was looking this up, and this is an interesting piece of justice that uh, <laughs> I wonder what this would do. I wonder how this would impact our justice system today. See, what uh, the in Deuteronomy, there is a law that says if somebody is uh, a malicious false witness and tries to accuse something of somebody, somebody of something, <laughs> excuse me, and it turns out that's false, then the thing that that person tried to get the other person punished for and uh, whatever that punishment would have been if they would have believed the false witness, that punishment actually gets given to the false witness who tried to falsely get the other person convicted. Let me read it for you. I like to actually read the passages because... Uh, the Bible's our authority, right? So Deuteronomy chapter 19, verses 16 through 21. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, 
Then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely. Then you shall do to him as he meant to do to his brother. So shall you purge the evil from your midst, and the rest shall hear and have fear, and shall never again commit such an evil from among you. You shall not pity. That's on the false witness who's trying to falsely get somebody, you know, punished. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, or foot for foot. So Jesus uh, says to the people, I tell you, uh, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And we just read this, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But Jesus has an entirely different type of life in mind for people. He says, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, one of the things we're going to notice about this and look into it a little more detail is that this the, the command is not to fight back, but the command is also not to run away. There is, there is neither fleeing nor shrinking away. It, Jesus rejects the duality of fight or flight in this instance. And the person, and we're going to look into this a little more deeply here in a couple minutes, the person is supposed to stand there in the face of it. And there's a reason for that, and we're going to be getting there shortly. But first of all, let's just notice that this uh, Jesus is uh, the person who does exactly what he tells other people to do, too. Uh, take you to, I'll take you to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23, describing uh, Jesus' passion and death. It says, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Now, if I want to take you back to, I think it's one of the most powerful scenes in the Passion of the Christ. Uh, there, Jesus and Pontius Pilate are up on the dais, and Pontius Pilate, uh, is he's trying to just sort of get out of this ticklish situation. And he turns to Jesus, and he says, don't you know I have the power to crucify you or set you free? And Jesus, he's like all bloody. He's already been beaten or everything and everything. And he's got the crown of thorns on. And he turns to Pilate and says, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you by my heavenly father. So this is sort of the, this is the foundation. This is where our willingness and ability to stand in the face of this abuse comes from, is entrusting ourselves to God, our Heavenly Father. That's what's going to enable us to stand under abuse, such as being struck on the cheek, and not fight back, and also not run away, but stay there in that person's presence. And this is going to turn out to be an important deal. So hang with me here for a moment. I'm sure you will. Paul, writing to the Romans, uh, expresses the same kind of thought. He says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. 
And so Paul is beginning to get at uh, what the truth is here. As, As you choose to stay in the situation, you're staying there not to show how strong you are, but to do what is honorable for everybody, including the person who is, uh, um, who has slapped you. Uh, you are, and we're going to get back to this more in a moment, you are, the best way to love that person is not to attack them, but also not to run away, but to stand there. That's what, would, that's what is honorable. So I'm going to take you through now a few different commentaries and what they have to say about this passage. Remember the passage, uh, let me just, I'm going to go back to it. Just, uh, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And I want to take you through, uh, just as an exercise, I want to take you through what a few different commentaries have to say about this. I think it's going to be interesting for you because you'll see You'll see some things going on, different perspectives for sure, and also different underlying assumptions. All right, so here's the first one. This is from a commentary uh, by a guy named um, Luz, and here's what he writes. A slap in the face was regarded as an expression of hate and as an insult. The insult is even more important than the pain. No particular situation is in view. And this is the thing that that some of the other commentators are going to disagree with, what he says right here. He says, no particular situation is in view. The issue is not that a master hits his slave or an oppressor hits the oppressed, nor is it the renunciation of one's rights to legal retribution for insults, nor is it the blows the disciples received during their mission as heretics. And so this commentator defines this idea of the slap in, in a most generic sense. It's, it's an expression of hate and insult. It's something that might happen in the marketplace. Uh, it's, it's um, well, in medieval times, uh, you might have seen people take off their glove and slap somebody in the face with it as, a, as a, like a challenge to a duel almost in that sense. That's not what's going on here. But he, this commentator sees it in a very generic kind of sense. But that's not the way all commentators see it. And I, I think there's more going on there also. I, I think he has kind of missed the boat. And we're going to see him, I think, uh, miss the boat again kind of because of the presuppositions with which he approaches the scriptures. Next commentator says this, and this guy's name is, well, there's two of them. It's Freeman and Chadwick. And this, by the way, is a book that typically I really like. It's called Manners and Customs of the Bible. And I think it's a really good book overall. And of course, these people are all scholars and I got, I'm, I'm not like, talking over them. And I'm not definitely uh, not calling into question their intelligence or their integrity or their thoroughness. I'm just saying I don't really agree with the, the particular thing they're doing here. So uh, Freeman and Chadwick in Manners and Customs of the Bible say this about that slap. This means to accept injuries and not to seek revenge, that turn the other cheek thing. Or in other words, to swallow your pride and walk away. Thus avoid a and thus avoid a confrontation that could result in permanent injury or death to somebody. To say nothing in this day 
of ensuing lawsuits. So the last guy, I think, did not give adequate weight to the idea of the right hand and the uh, uh, of the right cheek and the left cheek. This guy, I think, doesn't give adequate weight to the idea of standing there. He says, swallow your pride and walk away. But that is not, in fact, what the text says. So, moving on. We're doing a Bible study together. Woohoo! This one is from a book called The Commentary, uh, Critical and Explanatory on the Whole Bible. So it's a big, big book, uh, several volumes. And here's what it says. Our Lord's own meek yet dignified bearing when spitten on the cheek, as recorded in John 18, and not literally presenting the other is the best comment on these words. It is the preparedness after one indignity not to invite, but to submit meekly to another without retaliation, which this strong language is meant to convey. So he's saying it's just a matter of staying there and being dignified in the presence of someone else and being prepared to endure another indignity uh, and submitting meekly without retaliation. I also think he has missed the richness and depth of what's going on here. So here's the closest one I could find within my electronic library of digital resources. It's this guy here. It's the Bible Exposition Commentary. Uh, he says this, In order to, quote, turn the other cheek, we must stay where we are and not run away. Okay, we've been that far so far. This is where I think he gets it. This demands both faith and love. And what I would say to you is that uh, it, it demands faith in the God who is always working, just like we already talked about Jesus. And it demands love for the other person, the one who just slapped us. Because if they're slapping us, they are... Um, uh, they are they're, uh, they need there, there's something that needs to be addressed there if they're slapping us like that. And to to simply accept the slap and either retaliate or accept the slap and swallow our pride and walk away does not love the other person because it doesn't offer the other person a chance to uh, repent. It doesn't offer the the, um, the pressure and presence of love to make that person stop and think about what they're doing instead of just either entering into a larger uh, confrontation or the other person feeling like they won because you slink away. So love demands that you stay. Let me continue reading from this commentator. It also means that we will be hurt, but it is better to be hurt on the outside than to be harmed on the inside. But it further means that we should try to help the sinner. We are vulnerable because he may attack us anew, but we are also victorious because Jesus is on our side, helping us in building our characters. Psychologists tell us that violence is born of weakness, not strength. It is the strong one who can love and suffer hurt 
It's the weak man who thinks only of himself and hurts others to protect himself. He hurts others then when he runs away to protect himself. Or, of course, when he turns violent against the other person. So the loving thing is to stay there. And there's, uh, there's another piece of this that I read in another book that I don't have with me for this study, but I want to tell you about. Uh, the, the idea of this right cheek and left cheek, I think, has additional um, cultural meaning to it. See, if you picture a right-handed person, to slap someone standing across from you on the right cheek, you hit them with the back of your hand. And that's the standard slap for a subordinate. That's the way you would slap someone who is lower than you. And so when, when if you're in an instance where somebody slaps you as a subordinate, as someone lower than you, as someone worth less than you, as someone who they see themselves as the higher person, and they backhand you, and then you turn the other cheek to them, the only way they can slap you on the other cheek is with their palm. And with the palm is how you might slap an equal in this culture. Think of, um, well, <laughs> it, does, it doesn't really happen. It's never happened in my home. But I think of like uh, movies, especially older movies. Um, the, the man might say something or do something or whatever. And, um, and, and his wife slaps him in the face. Um, oh, I just saw that in <laughs> a very silly movie called The Spy Next Door with Jackie Chan. But anyway, uh, he had betrayed this woman's trust. And when she walked up to him, she slapped him in the face. And it wasn't a positional thing. She wasn't saying, I'm better than you or anything. She was just communicating uh, her... Um, her anger at his betrayal, and it was a peer-to-peer -peer thing. And so uh, some of the cultural analysts will look at this, uh, turn the other cheek, and say, when you offer the other cheek, you are refusing to uh, buy into your slapper's worldview in which you are worth less and they are worth more, in which you are the diminutive and they are the, uh, the person who's above you. So you turn the other cheek and you're unwilling to to buy into that. And I think that that actually fits really well with the other two that we're going to look at in a moment. So let's move on. Matthew 5 verse 40. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. So the first thing we want to do here is take a look at what a tunic is and what a cloak is, because I don't know about you, but growing up, I didn't naturally know what a tunic and a cloak were because I didn't wear tunics and cloaks. So let's do this tunic and cloak thing. So the cloak, well, excuse me, the tunic is a chiton. And that's like, uh, it's, you've got the, um, the way the dress, the people dressed back then, they had like an inner and an outer garment. So the tunic is like their shirt, and the cloak is like the robe that goes over the shirt. The tunic, here we go. Let me just read this to you, uh, especially in terms of this. It says the specific word can refer to all their clothing in a general sense, or, and since we're talking about two different pieces of clothing, this must be specific. 
specifically to refer to a garment worn next to the body, typically made of linen and worn by both sexes. The chiton was uh, chiton, I think, actually, probably, was usually made from two large rectangles of fabric sewn up the sides and fastened at the shoulders using small brooches, though Jesus wore a chiton made of a single piece of fabric. If you recall Jesus' crucifixion, when they took all his clothes, they, the soldiers decided to throw lots uh, for his tunic because it was one piece and that was valuable and they didn't want to rip it up. <coughs> Excuse me. So here, there, Jesus says, if they're going to, if they're suing you, let's go back and look at that. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, that's your undershirt, let him have your cloak, your outer garment as well. So let's go back. Uh, this exact instance is referenced in the Old Testament. In Exodus chapter 22, verses 25 through 27, there is some little uh, legal mumbo jumbo here about lending and, uh, and um, taking garments in pledge and things like that. So this is Exodus chapter 22, verses 25 to 27. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, that's an important little point there, you shall not be like a money lender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. So that's, th this is an aside, but uh, th there, um, evidently there were money lenders who might loan money for uh, purchases of large quantity or whatever, right? That kind of thing, we need to finance stuff now, right? Uh that's the way things happen, large transactions sometimes. But if someone is poor, you don't get to act like a money lender and you cannot charge him interest. That's what the scriptures say. And then I'll continue reading from Exodus 22. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak in pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that it is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. In what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. So in terms of this law, what's going on is uh, this neighbor, the, the person who is uh, borrowing money from somebody, is in dire, dire straits. This person has nothing to offer for collateral except their cloak, which is their outer garment, right? Nothing else. And so the scriptures say if someone's in that kind of condition, A, you don't charge him interest. And B, you can keep his cloak during the day, but you got to give it back at night because he needs it to sleep. So that's that's the situation here with the with the cloak and the tunic. So in this instance, if the person is suing in court, it's not a lender who's, it doesn't exactly apply to this. In fact, it's wor It's a worse situation. The, if the person is suing in court to take the man's tunic, he's, he's, he's gone to court to take, literally, take the shirt off this man's back. 
And Jesus says, if someone is going to sue you and take your tunic, give them your cloak too. And anybody who's like in court and has lent money to someone else and is now suing to take their tunic is not a person who needs to take that other person's shirt in order to feed his family. That's a person who is accumulating wealth on the backs of someone who is literally so poor that he's in danger of having the clothes taken off his back in a lawsuit. So Jesus says, if that's the case, if he's trying to take your tunic, give him your cloak too. Now, what's going to happen if you give him both your inner garment and your outer garment? The person will be naked. And here's the thing that we don't get in American culture. In a lot of cultures, and from what I read in this culture also, if you see someone naked, the shame is not on the naked person. It's on the person who sees them naked. Believe it or not, there have been actually been protests, uh, like in the Brazilian uh, in the in the rainforest in the Amazon, uh, where, or this might have been Africa. I can't remember where exactly, but there was uh, logging going on. People were there with the big equipment, and there was a protest, and the women stood in front of all the equipment to stop them from uh, from clear cutting the area. And the showdown went on for a while, and finally the women threatened to take off their clothes. Now, if this happened in America, I don't think that would work as a strategy because of our culture. But in this culture, if you are in the presence of someone who is naked, it is your shame, not the naked person's. And so if this, if they're in court, and this is why I think that right hand, left hand thing fits what Jesus is doing here. If they're in court and someone is, has, is hoarding wealth and 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 dehumanizing someone else to the point where he was suing him to take his undershirt then the right thing to do the strong thing to do in fact even by way of accountability for this man's evil the loving thing to do is to take your cloak off as well to make it very clear to everybody what's going on. And hopefully the publicness of the shame will call this person who is suing to take your undershirt to account and maybe bring about his repentance for the way he's treating people. So I, I just think that fits so well with the right hand and left hand. And it's going to fit well with the next one too about carrying uh, someone else's pack for a mile. Uh, and here I want to, I'm going to show you one of the commentators and show you why uh, you always got to, you always got to look for people's presuppositions and, and take everything with a grain of salt as you're trying to learn. And you end up having to be your own scholar, really, and until you find people you can really trust. So here's, um, here's what this guy, uh, Luz, said in his commentary on Matthew 1 through 7. Here the hyperbolic formulation is clear. Meaning that Jesus is, and Jesus does this. It's very evident that Jesus states extreme cases to make his point. He did that last week too. But as we pointed out last week, just because they are extreme cases, that will probably never happen doesn't mean they're not true. But take a look at what this guy says. Here the hyperbolic formulation is clear. Since a man whose shirt and cloak were also taken in trial, 
would be naked. And then this is where you this is where you clearly see his presupposition. Verse 40 cannot be demanding that. Clearly the Bible cannot say what it says. <laughs> That's what he's saying. Jesus couldn't have meant that. He couldn't have meant that. And I would tell you this. Anytime someone looks at a sentence that something that Jesus says and says, "Oh, he couldn't have meant that." I think there's a reasonable possibility he meant exactly that, and it's just really hard. That's what I think. So, okay. So we have the, if they, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other cheek also. Uh, then we have the, uh, if someone sues to take your undershirt, give them your outer garment as well. And I, th I think also, see, if you're suing to take their undergarment, that's like a hidden thing, right? Because if, if you give him your tunic, you can still wear your cloak around and no one will know that the guy who lent you money took your tunic from underneath. So there's kind of a hiddenness to his, his uh, abuse of the poor there too. Very interesting. Oh, so interesting. The Bible is like a well you never get to the bottom of. But let's move on. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. So the thing here is it's, it's not as though just anybody can force you to go a mile. What is going on here is that the Roman occupying forces were legally allowed to compel conscript people into helping carry loads. And in fact, we see this in Jesus' own crucifixion. Let's pop over to Matthew chapter 27, verse 32. And as Jesus is having trouble carrying his cross. It says, as they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, and they compelled this man to carry Jesus' cross. And so they were legally allowed to, if, if there's something going on and a soldier needs you to carry something, the soldier could conscript you to carry it. But let's explore that a little for, further because the Romans were very... Um, the Romans were very good at this kind of thing, and they, they typically uh, knew how to uh, keep people subjugated without pressing on them so hard that they revolted. Uh, they were really quite adept at that. Let me uh, pull up another commentary here. This is, I'm back in Manners and Customs of the Bible again, and it talks about the idea of forcing someone else, uh, being able to uh, conscript uh, anybody who's walking along to help. So here, I'm going to read this to you now. The reference here is to an ancient Persian custom. The Persians introduced the use of regular couriers to carry letters or news. The king's courier had absolute command of all help that was necessary in the performance of his task. He could press horses into service, and he could compel the owners to accompany him if he desired. To refuse compliance with his demands was an unpardonable offense against the king. There was also a practice in Roman-occupied territories that a, any Roman soldier could require a citizen to carry his equipment, his cloak, or other burdens for a mile. So, in this instance, Jesus is probably referring to Roman soldiers. And he says, if somebody forces you to carry their stuff for a mile, carry it for another mile. And what goes on here? It's the same thing that goes on by turning the cheek and forcing someone to slap you with your palm 
or giving your tunic to the person who's trying through his oppression to take your cloak. You are refusing to buy in to the caste system of the world. You're refusing to buy into the social strata and the power structure of the world. You are going to live the kingdom even if those around you aren't doing it. And you're not going to let them drag you into non-kingdom living. So a soldier forces you to carry his pack a mile. He gets a mile and he says, All right, maggot, give me my pack back. And, and you say to the soldier, That's all right, I'll carry it for another mile. Let's just keep walking, it's okay. <laughs> what have you done to that relationship? You have completely trashed the idea that you are the occupied territory and the soldier is in charge and you're in danger and he's the guy with force. You have said, you might be treating me with force, but I will treat you as a friend. You might be treating me as occupying soldier and, uh, and um, the, the person uh, whose country is being subjugated, but I'm going to treat you as a peer. And I think that's the strength. And see, again, in each instance, it's about not running away or attacking, but staying present in love. Staying present in love. In this instance, when you walk that second mile, you have shattered the soldier's worldview of you, basically. And you show love to him who is not showing love to you. And now, now things can begin to be different, right? Who knows? Who knows what the conversation would be if you're some poor Jewish person and the Roman soldier grabs you and says, carry my pack. And then he's like, OK, give it back. That's a mile. And you say, don't worry about it. I'll keep carrying it for a while. It's OK. Let's just go. He would just it would blow his mind. That's what would happen. Imagine the kingdom conversations that would grow out of an encounter like that. It's amazing. Think about it. All right. There's one more verse in this little section, and it goes like this. Matthew 5, verse 42. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So, when the shoe is on the other foot, when you are in the power position and someone's asking you for a handout, or asking if they can borrow money from you, don't you adopt, you know, I've... I've been in meetings at churches at a at a church I was at before, and uh, we were talking about things like vacation and and sick pay and all that stuff. And uh, I, I had people say, "Well, that's not the way it works at where I work." You know, when we're talking about how things should work, and my question would be, it, "Do you like it the way it is at your work? Do you think it's fair?" Because if you don't think it's fair, then we don't want to do it that way because we don't want to let your non-kingdom style employment bleed into our church work. We'd rather have it bleed out the other way around. I don't know how that would work in that instance exactly, other than the continued influence of this person uh, in, in, in portraying the love of Christ in their, in their um, job. But so this is saying when the shoe's on the other foot and you're the one who could loan money or not, give money or not, don't you take advantage of that and say, now I got mine. You stay in that kingdom mode where it's not I'm most important. It's not you are most important. 
It's that I'm going to take care of me. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to love everybody as best I can. Love your neighbor as yourself, not instead of yourself. It's a totally different way of thinking. So, on to the second section, which is Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48. And the title of that section is called Love Your Enemies. And uh, it is quite a bit shorter. We had all this cultural stuff to dig out of the first one. Uh, that This one is uh, much more clearer without having to um, go that deeply into the research. So here we go. I'm going to read this to you. This is the rest of the Bible passage we're digging deeper into today. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your enemy. Uh, excuse me. I'm going to just going to start that right over. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, do you love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you can be sons of your father who is in heaven? For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. All right, so this this is going to, uh, this is, we'll be able to wrap this one up in pretty short order here. First of all, this saying, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, that, uh, there's really no place in the Bible that says that. Uh, that's like common wisdom. And it doesn't seem uh, unreasonable, does it, to love your neighbor and hate your enemy? I mean, he's your enemy, right? That's the whole thing. So the idea that Jesus says, you've heard it said, that's just common wisdom. He says the common wisdom, you could say that in your head if you want, the common wisdom is love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Why? It's the kingdom. That's the way things work in the kingdom of God. The K-O-G, we call it. Or at least I call it. <laughs> you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Why? What, how does Jesus discern this? Other than the fact that he's just asserting it as the Son of God walking on earth. He looks at the world and he says, The Father makes his Son rise on the evil and the good. He sends his reign on the just and the unjust. So uh, God doesn't like... Uh, differentiate between the good and the bad people. God is, and, and I think you could figuratively say with the sun and the rain, God is showering his love on everybody. He's not distinguishing who he loves and who he doesn't. There may be people not receptive to his love. There may be people who are ignorant of his love. There may be people who in their brokenness aren't interested in his love because his love will tear down their pride and their uh, all the other stuff that makes them feel whatever it is they like to feel. So here, Jesus, I think we can e safely say that that God in his in the sun and the rain is pouring love on everybody. And then Jesus said, goes on to give a couple of what I think are pretty clear examples. They don't need a lot of explanation. If you love people who love you, what reward do you have? What big deal is that? I mean, he says, don't even tax collectors do the same? Tax collectors, if you recall, were quite hated among the general Jewish population because they were Jewish people who were working for the Roman government 
collecting taxes to be given to Rome. That's not the temple tax. This is the they had they were working for the occupying forces collecting taxes to send back to Rome. So when Jesus says don't even tax collectors do the same, in in their mind, he is scraping the bottom of the barrel. Even the tax collectors love people who love them. What, what big deal is that? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles, the non-Jews, the people who are not, you know, God's chosen people or whatever. And I think partly Jesus is really just sort of speaking into their self-perception of their own culture and um, nation there. If you only greet your brothers, uh, doesn't everybody do that? So don't even Gentiles do that. So you got to love the people who don't love you and greet people that you wouldn't normally greet. Greet everybody. Say hi to everybody. Be kind to everybody. Love everybody. That's what's going on here. That's what Jesus is getting at. And so in these other instances where uh, we have the idea of turning the cheek or carrying the pack further or... Um, Oh, what was the other one? Oh, the tunic thing. Uh, it is, in fact, love of the other that motivates these behaviors. And then he says this last little thing. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Well, that is a high standard. And we're going to, I'm going to address that right at the end. I'm going to, uh, what I want to do now Stick with me. Almost there. We're going to sum up what we've gone through. And uh, we're going we're gonna to break apart this last sentence into its pieces. And it's pretty important. Pretty important to break it into its pieces. So, uh, first point for what we've read through today is love your neighbor as yourself without distinction for rich or poor or friend or enemy. That's the way of the kingdom. That's the way of Jesus. In fact, Jesus would make a special point of proactively loving those that one would not naturally love. You are, in fact, to love the person who slapped you on one cheek. And you love them by staying present and turning the other cheek and refusing to buy into their system of higher and lower so that you call them to account for their action as a peer. You love the person who's trying to take your undergarment by giving him your outer garment too. By making his actions public, you will call him to account for his actions. Not in a mean-spirited way. You don't attack him, but nor do you just turn your tail and run. You love him enough to speak truth to him. Same thing with the pack, right? You proactively make a point of loving that soldier who forced you to carry his pack so that you might spread the kingdom of God into and toward that soldier's life. And then, of course, the last, the, the last piece we just read uh, just highlights this completely, right? Uh, if you love those who love you, big deal. The tax collectors do that. If you greet, uh, in, if you greet only your brothers, why, why is that a big deal that you greet your brothers? Everybody greets their brothers. 
So the idea is to make a special point, because this is where we have to be aware, right? You don't have to be aware. You don't have to take special pains. You don't have to take special care. You don't have to stop and meditate or journal or think about or whatever it is you do to be kind to people who are kind to you, to smile at people who are smiling at you. But you do need to take special care if you want to be kind and smile at and generous with people who don't normally uh, bring that out of you. So that's the first lesson. Love your neighbor as yourself without distinction of rich or poor, friend or enemy. It's just love. It's not me. It's not you. It's always we. God's love comes down on everybody like rain and so should ours. Point number two that we see in these lessons. It is our job as Christians to live the kingdom even when others are not. In each of these cases, the person who is on what would appear to be the downside of the equation refuses to live into that way of looking at the world. They refuse to stand in and acknowledge that as a valid way of looking at the world. They continue to stand in the kingdom, in the kingdom where all are loved and all are equal, even if other people aren't treating them that way. They refuse to be drawn out of their kingdom worldview. This is good for you as a person all by yourself, and it's a good witness to the other person. Who, Like I said, who knows what kind of conversations are going to go on with that soldier, right? Okay, so last thing. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. This takes us to two places, and it's two places we find all over the Bible. It's called, uh, the Lutheran theology anyways, calls it the law and the gospel. And it kind of, if you want to think of it in 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 the most easily remembered and recognizable terms, think of the Ten Commandments. And the way Jesus, this is what we did last week, right? The way Jesus expands the Ten Commandments, where it's not just if you commit adultery, it's if you even look lustfully at somebody. It's not just if you murder, it's if you're even angry with somebody, that in anger in a way that could lead to murder, that kind of thing. Um, and so when, when those commandments come up, Jesus pushes on them. And he pushes and he pushes. And what that is, is that is the law uh, uh, he's what Jesus is doing with those rules uh, is driving us to despair of our ability to live lives that are worthy of God in any sense of keeping score or coming out on top or getting more hash marks in the positive side. Um, and and so when he says be perfect, it's like, well, gee, the, the things that you just said are all very difficult and you have to close it off with the words be perfect. I'm sunk, man. And that's where God wants you because he, because we will never have peace if we approach our relationship with God as something that we are walking into as worthies or as people who have to earn it or reach a certain level of something. God has gone to the greatest lengths possible, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, to show us that his love for us is a father's love. It's a father's love. And if you're a father, if you're a parent, and your child thought your love 
went uh, stopped and started based on their behavior, that would be very uh, sad. As a parent, I would be very sad and I would work very hard to change that. That doesn't mean I'd quit disciplining, but I would work very hard. And I do, as a matter of fact, work very hard to make sure my children know that my love for them never changes. Sometimes my relationship is more of partner in fun. And sometimes my relationship more is the is the bringer of the discipline. And a lot of times it's the teacher. But the love never changes. And I work so hard to make sure they know that. And so... What Jesus does with statements like this is he drives us to despair because, not because he wants us to feel bad, but because that's the only way we're going to receive mercy is if we have, are disabused of the idea that we are somehow uh, worthy of God and, and if, we, if we achieve a certain percentage of goodness or whatever, that we're okay. Because that's not the relationship God wants with us at all. That's not love. God wants a relationship of love with us. He wants sons and daughters. So when he says be perfect, that's the first thing he's doing. But we don't want to do what that other guy did and say Jesus couldn't mean that. There's a second thing. Once once you despair of the idea of earning God's love and acceptance, of earning your way into heaven, of anything like that, once you throw yourself on God's mercy and realize and receive the good news of Jesus that he has completely forgiven you. He's not counting any sins against you. He's hurled them all into the sea. And as far as he's concerned, your relationship with him is father and child, not some sort of person who has to earn anything. Once you realize that and come to that, then these kind of things are still there. They still reveal the heart of God for what our lives should look like, for what our behavior should look like, for how our hearts should be toward ourselves and toward others and toward all the world. So first it drives us to despair, but then it presents to us a goal that we can always continue to grow toward. I'd call it a gospel goal. It's where we seek to grow to be like Christ. The Bible talks about us growing to be like Christ, having the mind of Christ formed in us. So these things, if we take them seriously, you don't want to just blow this off just because it's a, it, it drives you to despair. It's still there. It's still real. It is the thing. Jesus said, uh, there is not one iota of the law that's going to pass away. So that is still there, but it's not a standard to be met, to become uh, acceptable in God's sight and worthy of his presence. You have been made that by grace in Jesus Christ. And what you have now is a thankful heart. And you say, what should I do? What should I do? And he says, well, here's what you do. Uh, if someone forces you to carry their pack one mile, you carry two miles. If someone tries to take your tunic, give them your cloak too. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn the other cheek. This is what we do. And you're happy to do that. It's love and gratitude, not worry about whether or not you have met some standard that you think God is... Uh, the minimum bar God has for his people or something like that. So I'm going to close with three points to ponder. Always want to close with some, some things to think about, some questions to ask ourselves. And here are your questions. Am I willing to stay present in love when suffering the abuse of other people? And I'm, I want to be careful about this because there are definitely times to protect yourself. There are times uh, 
to, well, okay, uh, the first instance is if there's any substance abuse at all involved. Uh, that is not the time to stay present and let someone slap you again because they're not functioning as a rational human being. And uh, so you might want to take steps to protect them from themselves, but you're not loving them by standing there and let them abuse, letting them abuse you in their altered state of uh, reasoning and emotion. For instance, uh, there, uh, there are all sorts of situations where uh, this needs to be thought through because you have to love yourself and you have to love them. And the question is, how do you love everybody best? That's the way to ask that. But part of that question is, are you willing to stay present in love when so, I mean, we don't get slapped anymore, but some of us have been spoken to abusively for sure. And are you willing to stand there and then speak love back? Truth and love in strength back to the person who has spoken abusively to you. Number two, do I gossip or speak ill of others or in some other way behave unlovingly toward people who are not present? Excuse me. Because that's part of loving those other people is not uh, talking behind their back in that way. And number three, and this is this is the big thing, and, and you should always be asking this whenever you're in the scriptures or prayer or whatever. Is the Holy Spirit convicting me of anything right now? Write it down and deal with it. Write it down and deal with it. And that is where we end. This is Dig Deeper, and I am John Rallison, and I am very glad that you have made it with me uh, to the very end here. I hope that uh, you find the comfort of the gospel in this lesson as we went through the end there where Jesus said, be perfect, and uh, we are driven to despair of our own perfection so that we rely on God's mercy, which has poured out abundantly on us. And then... I also hope and pray that you take to heart the wisdom of Jesus here for staying in the kingdom, your life and emotions and thoughts in the kingdom of God when the people around you are trying to drag you out of this place of righteousness, peace, and joy, trying to drag you out of the place where all are created and loved equally into their systems of power and uh and all that kind of stuff. Because God wants you to have righteousness, peace, and joy. And uh, sometimes I ramble a little bit, but I'm not going to ramble anymore today. Thank you for being with me. And God bless you. God loves you. I love you. And if you're ever in Orlando, I'd love to see you at our church. It's Journey of Life Lutheran Church. The website is journeyoflife.org. And again, if you're around on Ash Wednesday, uh, we'd love to have you at our Ash Wednesday service. Go to our website and you'll get all the information there on attending our Ash Wednesday service. God bless you. Bye-bye. Visit us at www.journeyoflife.org. Thanks for being with us. Poyo, 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 poyo.